The United States of America was founded upon Christian principles, and throughout the history of our nation, our Christian heritage has been respected by our government officials until the middle of the 20th century. Since that time, Christianity has come under increasing attack from government officials at all levels, but particularly from those in our national government. To put this trend in perspective from the viewpoint of an expert on the subject, please stay tuned. Lamb and Lion Ministries presents Christ in Prophecy, a program that focuses on the fundamentals of Bible prophecy, showing how current events in the news relate to biblical predictions of end-time events and the soon return of Jesus. Now, here's your host, Dr. David Reagan. Greetings in the name of Jesus, our blessed hope, and welcome to Christ in Prophecy. Last week, we began broadcasting a new series of programs drawn from presentations made during our 2011 Bible Conference, the theme of which was Christianity Under Attack. In our program last week, we focused on the challenge of Islam. This week, our topic is the challenge of government, and our presenter is none other than Dr. Frank Wright, the esteemed president of the National Religious Broadcasters, whose offices are located in the Washington, D.C. area. This man and his staff operate daily in the halls of Congress, where they are waging a war to protect the rights of Christians against government intrusion. Here now is Dr. Wright. Great to be here with you uh, to enjoy these cool North Texas breezes. (laughs) I'm telling you, my car said 98 degrees the whole way over here last night, so it is hot here. Which reminds me of how cold it was in Washington, D.C. this past winter. We don't normally get terribly cold winters, but it it was an exceedingly cold winter. So much so that all the high-priced lawyers and attorneys in Washington, D.C. actually kept their hands in their own pockets for a change. So it was... Uh, I'm going to attempt to do something that I hope will be beneficial for all of us. It has been for me as I've considered this and studied this. I've not come to give you a report about what's going on in Washington, D.C. so much. I'll touch on a couple of legislative items at the end that I think bear on our ability to freely proclaim the gospel of Christ. But uh, it was Winston Churchill who once said, the farther you look back, the farther forward you can see. In other words, history is prologue to what's coming next. And I believe that we live in a day when we must look back to clearly see what lies ahead, especially as it relates to the halls of the corridors of power Uh, which in Washington, D.C. makes up the three branches of government, the executive branch, the president, the Congress, and the courts. And all three of those branches today are impinging dramatically on our religious freedoms. I think it's important that we look back because, in my opinion, the days ahead for us, and I'm no Jeremiah, I'm not here to deliver a a Jeremiah, a wringing our hands in fear and trembling. I'm not of that camp. But I believe the days ahead are fraught with danger. And the greatest danger may be that if we sit on our hands and do nothing. But there are other dangers as well, and I want to speak to some of those. I I think you could argue that we live in the most significantly, or a time significantly fraught with peril 
perhaps more than any other time since the founding of our country. And yet with that danger, I think we see the seeds of opportunity as well. I'm persuaded that in order to advance truth, which is what we're really all about, isn't it? You know, Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, and he said, Pilate said, so you're a king. And he said, for this reason was I born, and for this reason have I come into the world. What? Jesus is telling you the very reason he was born? The very reason he came into the world? What did he say? For this reason was I born, for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. And the mission of Christian broadcasters, the mission of the church of Jesus Christ, is to advance truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I'm persuaded that in order to advance truth, we have to have a healthy respect and understanding for its foes, for those who oppose truth. As someone who I've known for many years in Washington, D.C., once said, It's good to read the Bible every day to know what God is thinking, and it's good to read the Washington Post just to get the opposing viewpoint. (laughs) That's not really very charitable, is it, to our friends at the Washington Post? uh, But the principle is a good one. We need to know how how the opponents of truth respond to our message in order to, to do a better job of proclaiming our message. If we aim to proclaim truth, we must carefully study how our adversaries opponent. In my years of working on Capitol Hill, I've observed a standardized approach used by many who contend with us in the marketplace of ideas. It's a predictable methodology that I see unfold almost every day of the week. It's what I call the politics of opposition. The politics of opposition. In this seven-point framework that I'm going to give you, you will see the principal way that ideas are opposed in political, legal, legislative arenas, but also just in the marketplace of ideas, the very place that we're trying to advance the gospel of Christ. More than that, you'll see, the, I think, the principal way that truth is opposed in almost every forum you can imagine. I want to walk you through the seven stages, quickly, through the seven stages of the politics of opposition, and then I want to apply them to our battle to bring the gospel and the mind of Christ into the culture. That's what's needed, isn't it? To proclaim Christ, but also to bring the mind of Christ to the institutions of our culture. Uh, It was Abraham Kuyper who, who, who said that only Jesus can say there's not one inch of all creation that Christ cannot say, mine. It's all his. He is sovereign. He's sovereign over the church. He's sovereign over the culture. He's sovereign over government, business, law, education. All of it is submissive or should be and one day will be to the sovereign reign of the King of Kings. Let me begin by uh, also, as we walk through this, I want to apply these things then to our effort to advance the gospel and the culture and the opposition that we see there. I want you to keep in mind as I begin that I'm speaking primarily about a strategy, about a plan of opposition. It's not just some random thing that happens. And uh, it's employed by those who stand in opposition to public policy questions and also values and ethics and truth itself. The first step in the politics of opposition is a simple one. It's quite simply to just ignore your viewpoint. 
They won't even uh, condescend to acknowledge your idea. In fact, they believe that the very act of acknowledging you would give your position more recognition than it deserves. And so you are summarily and rather haughtily dismissed. We see atheists do that principally as it relates to believers, dismissing them altogether, not even willing to entertain their ideas. Step two is to marginalize your opinion by characterizing it as being out of the mainstream. How many times in Washington, D.C. have I heard the word mainstream? And boy, as far as I can tell, that stream flows pretty far to the left in Washington, D.C. It's not down the middle. Here your opponents will do something different than ignore you. They sort of shake their heads uh, by, saying, and, uh, by saying that only those on the fringes of the debate hold the opinion that you hold. In other words, you're, you are way out there on the margin and not uh, worthy to be uh, really even recognized. And so they just label you as a fringe type of a person and accompanied by the appropriate winks and nods and sort of condescending looks, they say, well, these people are just a little extreme. That's what you all are. Do you know that you're extremists? And, you know, he was condemned for saying it, but I loved Goldwater's comment all those years ago in which he said extremism in pursuit of virtue is no vice. Extremism in pursuit of truth is no vice. The third step in in the politics of opposition is Having tried to ignore you, having tried to marginalize you, they will then attack the factual basis of your opinion. You got your facts all wrong. Recognizing that they can no longer ignore you or marginalize you, they will begin to contend with you. However, they will not contend over the perspective you're advancing, but over the foundation on which it rests. And so they're going to say uh, to themselves, if we can destroy, destroy or discredit the factual foundation, then your viewpoint that you're trying to advance goes along with it. In this way, your antagonists, antagonists hope to uh, argue that your stance is not worth, in, worth considering because it's just factually way off base. It's not worthy of consideration. So step one is to ignore, step two is to marginalize, and step three is to attack the factual basis of your idea. But when the efforts to undermine your factual basis uh, begin to fail, they begin to challenge you in a different way. By dismissing you by dismissing your idea as though the debate over it is over. It's been resolved, and you're on the losing side. With a wave of their hand, they invoke that favorite mantra. The debate is over in this matter, don't you know? Here's some of the other words they'll use to accompany this dismissal. History has shown, experts agree, choose your experts, it's now beyond dispute This matter has been long settled. That's the rhetoric of dismissal. These things that you bring forward, they are from old, and they have been dismissed and discredited a very long time ago. They attempt to dismiss your ideas. The not-too-subtle point being that you are a member of the Latter-day Flat Earth Society and that your ideas are so out of touch and have long been discredited that we can ignore them. Well, having declared the debate over and yet still seeing your persistent efforts to advance truth in the marketplace of ideas, your foes will eventually draw the next arrow from their quiver. And here begin the ad hominem attacks. Ad hominem meaning against the man. The personal attacks. You've brought your ideas forward. They've attempted to ignore them, to marginalize them, to attack the factual basis, to dismiss the ideas, the debate being over. Now they're coming after you. 
Now, these personal attacks are shaped like this initially. No serious person believes that. All reasonable people agree. Reputable experts are of the same opinion. You get the flavor of that. What they mean by that is you're not a person to be taken seriously. You're not a reasonable person. In fact, you're a little disreputable. Well, we're all in that class, aren't we? In the class of the disreputable according to the eyes of the unbelieving world. By the way, these attacks generally begin with sort of a rhetorical flair, using the kind of phrases that that I just used, but they quickly descend into rank name-calling, casting aspersions on your character and your integrity, even pelting you with epithets, and so much for their, you know, their greatest mantra, of course, is tolerance, but they... They, uh, they have very little tolerance for us. Some of our other speakers here at this conference can testify in detail as to the mean-spirited nature of these attacks once they begin. And these attacks are all designed to accomplish one thing, to divert attention from your viewpoint to you. They realize they're losing ground on the idea you're advancing, and so they're trying to undermine your personal credibility. But then these ad hominem attacks are followed by something far more ominous, and I believe that's exactly where we are today. The next step in the politics of opposition is to restrict your ability to advance your viewpoint. So a dramatic example of this comes from the world of broadcasting. It's the so-called fairness doctrine, which I won't go into a lot of detail about it, except to say that the government in days past looked at the limited spectrum available for broadcast and said, you know, we have a compelling government interest to ensure that every viewpoint is heard. And so the fairness doctrine is kind of an equal time requirement that if you advocated on a position of substantial public importance, an idea that was deemed to be controversial, you had to make equal time available for an opposing viewpoint. That doctrine reigned in radio and television for 30 or 40 years And it was repealed, but there have been repeated attempts to bring it back. And even though it's sort of struggling in our day because its opponents have been successful in labeling it a policy not not worthy of support in light of our free speech protections, it still seems to rear its ugly head over and over again. By the way, I hope you can hear the the two problems with the Fairness Doctrine. The first is, on matters of substantial public importance... And then if you bring a controversial viewpoint, who makes this determination as to which matters are of substantial public importance? The government. Who decides that your viewpoint is controversial? The government. And so you have the government so controlling the marketplace of ideas that your viewpoint is restricted because you have to give up half your time to to make uh, opposing viewpoints heard as well. Now, I will say that back in the day of limited spectrum, what the, you know, the FCC calls uh, spectrum scarcity, this might have been a reasonable public policy at one point. But today, with radio and television, satellite and wireless and cable, and all the means of dis- distributing content electronically, you cannot argue that there is spectrum scarcity, nor can you argue that there's a viewpoint that's not being heard because of it. And so the Fairness Doctrine has been widely discredited, but you need to understand what it is at its essence. It's an, op- it's an effort to restrict your ability to proclaim the things that you believe are true. It's declaring Christianity to be 
controversial. And having made that declaration, who is not waiting in line from the ranks of Islam or Eastern mysticism or rank paganism to say, I have an opposing viewpoint, I'd like to bring my opposing viewpoint. And by the way, which doctrine of the Christian church is not controversial anyway? Might that be the deity of Jesus Christ? No, everybody agrees on that. Oh, wait a minute. No, they don't. How about the resurrection? How about the virgin birth? Pick any Christian doctrine you can think of, and someone's going to say, I find that to be controversial, and I demand equal time. So you see what they're trying to do is squelch you. It's an effort to restrict your ability, to constrain your ability to speak truth into the marketplace of ideas. And finally... Uh, in our steps, uh, seven steps into politics of opposition, efforts to constrain your freedom to express your ideas are followed closely by an aggressive effort to legally prohibit them. And that is what stands immediately in front of us in our generation. Here, the force of law is applied to stop you and give warning to others who might be of like mind to you. And... Uh, the recently enacted hate crimes legislation is the very tool that they will use to accomplish that end. I'll talk about that a little bit more. So let me re- recapitulate here, if I might. The seven steps in the politics of opposition are first, you are ignored, then you are marginalized, then the veracity of your arguments, the factual basis, is challenged, then you are attacked personally, not your veracity, but your integrity. Then you are restricted in your ability to advance your ideas. Then you are prohibited from prohibiting, uh, promoting the ideas you hold as truth. You are watching Dr. Frank Wright, president of the National Religious Broadcasters. He is speaking on the challenge that our national government presents to Christianity today. He's been talking about how government attempts to marginalize those with whom it disagrees. As we continue with his presentation, he will illustrate how these techniques are being applied to Christianity today. Well, what lessons can we learn from this system of opposition that I've seen over and over again a thousand times? Uh, what can we learn in terms of uh, our mission to advance truth and to bring the mind of Christ to the culture? Well, the first is, step one in the politics of opposition is not all that bad of a thing. When they ignore you, when you can fly a little bit under the radar screen, you can accomplish a great deal. When you are engaged in cultural reformation, in fact it may not be a great idea to hold up a flag and wave it in front of your enemy and tell him what you're doing. It might be a good idea to go about the business of proclaiming truth and attempting to transform the culture without so much fanfare. Second, remember that attempts to marginalize your viewpoint are really a sign of weakness uh, on their part. And it really is a platform for response from you. When they try to say your views are out of the mainstream, it's an opportunity to respond. We could all learn from a technique that I learned from Dr. Kennedy many years ago that he called the judo technique. You know, in martial arts, all forms of martial arts, judo uh, as an example of it, typically what's done is you, you attempt to use the force of your opponent's blow, throw them off balance, and use that energy, use that force against them to, uh, you know, to, to defeat them. And uh, Dr. Kennedy used to talk about using the judo technique, 
using the force of your opponent's blow and turning it against them. So when he said, when someone attempts to assign you to the fringes of the debate, you respond by saying, I'm glad you said that. My viewpoint is not widely held because that reveals to me you don't even understand the foundation of what I'm trying to say. Let me stop for a moment and explain to you what our viewpoint really is, and then you might be able to make a decision about whether you want to oppose it or not. So you take, because when someone comes at you and says your viewpoint is fringe, what is the motivation that's driving them? It's their pride. It's their pride, and they act condescendingly as though they understand Christian truth, in which they don't. And so you can turn that against them and uh, make your case as persuasively as possible, having disarmed your opponent. In this way, what is essentially, let's, let's be honest with it, when you try to dismiss somebody as being a uh, fringe, on the fringe of an argument, that's nothing more than a high school debate team tactic. It's easily overcome as long as you can, can forcefully proclaim truth. Third, let me say, remember that the attacks against the factual basis of your viewpoint are also an opportunity to speak truth and to speak truth to a culture that doesn't believe in truth. I want want you to miss this point. The culture out there today says we don't believe in truth. We don't believe truth even exists. But when you argue for the factual basis of what you believe and they say that factual basis is false, in the world of logic, they're arguing that, the, that yours is false, something else is true. They're arguing that they do, in fact, believe in truth. So they're really undermining their own position when they do that. But the very argument that your viewpoint is not true, therefore, presupposes another viewpoint that is. And this is an important advantage. And then fourth, when someone declares the debate to be over, recognize that you have won an important victory. <laughs> we saw this, I think, in... Uh, in a lot of ways, certainly in the global warming debate. When Al Gore stood up and said, listen, the debate is over, you knew for sure it was not over. (laughs) When anybody says the debate is over, you can be sure that it's not. It means that they are trying to uh, get away from the strength of your argumentation and trying to declare it something beyond debate. And then fifth, we need to recognize that the onset of ad hominem attacks is the first sign that the opposition has become fearful of the strength of your arguments. When they begin to attack you, it's a sign that they recognize the strength of your argument and are are becoming somewhat desperate in their efforts to restrict it. This is a signal that they're fearful of your ideas and they must strike at your personal credibility in order to undermine it. I don't know, some of you are here or have been around long enough to remember the Clinton days and poor Paula White and the accusations that she made against former President Clinton. And uh, here lies a good example of this uh, ad hominem kind of approach. It wasn't until Paula White's assertions became more credible and could no longer be ignored that the ad hominem attacks began, that the Clinton, what they used to call the Clinton attack machine, went into action. And it was then that James Carville went on national television and essentially called Paula White trailer park trash. Shameful, shameful, but reflective of the fact that they couldn't argue against the facts any longer and had to attack this poor woman who was standing against the most powerful man in the world. Six, we need to recognize that attempts to even restrict the prohibition to advance your ideas signal the onset of full combat. The onset of full combat. I want to come back to that because 
we can't just deal with all this intellectually. We are now at the, replay, at the place where all of these things are going to demand from the people of God a response. And when the attacks shift from the ad hominem to efforts to restrict to efforts to protect, uh, prohibit, rather, we're engaged in a great battle, not just to defend our ideas, but to defend our very liberties, to defend the First Amendment, which guarantees us the right to, to uh, free speech and the, and the free exercise of our religion. It wasn't too many years ago that there was a Weather Channel commentator, her name was Heidi Cullen, who argued that meteorologists who don't agree with the global warming consensus should have their credentials revoked. <laughs> That's what I call prohibiting the expression of your ideas. You're a meteorologist. You spent, you know, who knows how many years, probably 10, 12 years in school studying all this to earn a doctorate in meteorology. And then she comes along and says, if you don't accept the global warming consensus, your con- credentials should be completely revoked. She's not dealing with the ideas or the facts surrounding the ideas. She's just trying to take you out. Here is a a signal that the significant damage being done by your stance is viewed by the other side as something that must be contained. It must be prohibited. I hope you can also see how the politics of opposition has been used against the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the ages. It fits perfectly. Initially, the gospel was ignored And yet it spread inexorably. Attempts were made by religious and political leaders to marginalize the gospel by by declaring it a small splinter sect of misguided people whose views that no reasonable person held. Same thing, marginalizing. They attacked the factual basis of the gospel from the very afternoon of the day that Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't rise from the dead. They stole his body. The Bible's not true. It's full of errors. The factual basis of Christianity has been attacked from the afternoon of the day Christ rose from the dead. And after centuries of argumentation during which the gospel encircled the globe, skeptics of the last century also attempted to declare the debate is over. How'd they do that? God's dead. Hey, God's dead. Did you all get the message? The debate's over. God is dead. Christianity is a falsehood based on false premises. You have been watching Dr. Frank Wright speaking on the challenge of government to Christianity. Dr. Wright is the president of the National Religious Broadcasters. If you'd like to get a video copy of Dr. Wright's entire presentation, you can do so by requesting this album entitled Christianity Under Attack. The album contains three DVDs that in turn contain all six of the presentations that were made at our 2011 Bible Conference. Each presentation runs approximately 50 minutes in length, so this album contains 300 minutes of fully illustrated presentations by six different speakers on the following topics. The challenge of Islam, the challenge of government, the challenge of apostasy, the challenge of evolution, the challenge of humanism, and The Promise of Victory. You can get the album for a gift of $25 or more plus the cost of shipping. Just call the number you see on the screen and ask for the album by name, Christianity Under Attack. Call Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central Time. You can also request the album through our website at www.lamlion.com. 
Next week, the Lord willing, we will continue with this series of programs taken from our 2011 Bible Conference. Our featured speaker will be James Walker, the president of Watchman's Fellowship, one of Christendom's foremost cult-watching ministries. His topic will be the challenge of apostasy. I hope you'll be back with us for that program. Until next week, the Lord willing, this is Dave Reagan speaking for Lamb and Lion Ministries saying, look up, be watchful, for our redemption is drawing near. Thank you for joining us on today's Christ in Prophecy, a presentation of Lamb and Lion Ministries, a non-denominational ministry dedicated to teaching the fundamentals of biblical prophecy and proclaiming the soon return of Jesus. 